If you type the words famous servants into Google, the number one response you will get are images of this man. Who is it? It's Carson from the hit ITV drama Downton Abbey. Carson was in charge of the pantry and the wine cellar and the dining room of the Abbey. He led the male staff who worked downstairs and he upheld the moral values of the time. Carson served the Crawley family with distinction and was loved by the other characters as well as the viewers themselves. Now there were other famous servants brought up by Google. If you know your English literature, you will recognise the name of Passepartout from Round the World in 80 Days, Jeeves from the writing of P.G. Woodhouse, Sam Weller from Dickens' The Pickwick Papers, and even Hagrid from Harry Potter. What you will notice though with all these names is that they are all fictional. They're all made up. We only know of them because they star in our favourite books and films. In fact, nowhere on my page of Google search results was the name of a real person, a real-life servant. And that is because there is no such thing as a famous servant. Those two things are mutually exclusive. The role of a servant is to serve their master, to humbly and quietly go about seeing to their needs. It's not to gain attention or esteem for themselves, but to promote at every turn the one that they are working for. A servant is selfless and self-effacing. A servant puts the needs of others before themselves. In the Old Testament, the Hebrew word translated servant has a very specific meaning. In the ancient Near East, a servant was a trusted envoy or confidential representative of a king. A great ruling monarch would send their servant out to do their bidding for them in a foreign land. <coughs> now in the Old Testament, there was one group of people who had this calling above any other. It was Israel. Israel were God's servant. They served the great heavenly king by working for him in the world. They served God by serving their neighbours. And if you look at any of the great foundational texts of Israel as a people, you will find this idea. When God met with Abraham and promised him a great family, he promised him that he would bless Israel so that all the peoples on earth would be blessed through them. When God later called Israel to the foot of Mount Sinai and gave them the Ten Commandments and the other instructions for how they were to live in their new land, he called them to be a kingdom of priests. People who would represent him before all the other kingdoms of the world and make him known in word and deed. Israel were to serve God. Perhaps the best way to think of this is along the lines of an elected politician. We elect politicians not so they can get big-headed and go on an ego trip with all their newfound power and wealth. No, we elect politicians to represent us, 
to stand up for our needs. We elect politicians to get things done and to alleviate the struggles of those in our community. Politicians, above all else, are to be public servants. That's the phrase we use, isn't it? Well, Israel were chosen by God for the same reason. They were to be public servants. They'd not been elected, chosen, just for their own benefit, but for the benefit of those living around them. Israel were to spread God's word. Israel were to make God's love known to the world. And they were to do this by demonstrating justice and making peace and treating all people well. But sadly, as the Old Testament goes on, Israel increasingly fail to do this. In fact, rather than serving God by serving others, they seek only to serve themselves. Rather than remaining humble and self-effacing, they become filled with this sense of entitlement. There is this dark longing within them to be the master that orders everyone else around. And God sees this and he's not happy about it. This is not the way that things were supposed to be. And many vulnerable people are becoming damaged as a result. So through the prophets, God sends warning after warning to Israel. My people, you cannot pretend to worship me while all the rest of the time you're serving your own ego. You cannot lay sacrifices at my altar and then next minute deceive someone in the marketplace or overtax the poor or shed innocent blood or cast a widow from our home or fail to defend the orphan or abuse the foreigner in your land. This will not do. It has to stop. And you will find these warnings littering the pages of the Old Testament. They come from all sorts of voices in all sorts of time periods. Jeremiah, Amos, Micah, to name but a few. Yet sadly, Israel ignored them all. They ignored all these warnings sent by God. They carried on serving only themselves rather than God and neighbour. So in the end, God was left with no option. In order to get his plans back on track, in order to stop more vulnerable people from being exploited, he sent his beloved nation into exile. He allowed Israel's land to be overrun and the people to be dragged away in the hope that this last desperate act of discipline would bring them to their senses. And thankfully, in part, it did. As Israel suffered in exile, they began to consider their past behavior and repent from it. They began to turn back to the Lord and called on him to forgive them and grant them another chance. If God would return them back to their land, they'd begin to serve him once more. And this is where our prophecy comes in. Because on seeing his people's newfound humility, God started to send some new messages to Israel. He called his prophet Isaiah to give them some wonderful news. Once they had served 70 years in captivity, they would be returned home. God promised them their release. 
But once they were home, they were to go back to their original role. They were to serve him by serving the world around them. So in the second half of the book of Isaiah, you start getting these beautiful descriptions of what God's servant will be like. The character and the behaviour that Israel are to demonstrate to their neighbours. And Isaiah 42 is the first of these, and it is truly beautiful. God's servant will bring justice to the nations. God's servant will act with great gentleness. He will not shout or raise his voice. He will not break a bruised reed. He will not snuff out a fragile, smouldering wick. God's servant will act faithfully and determinedly until all the world is treated well. He will speak God's word so that all can know the hope found in God's love. Coming into contact with God's servant will be such good news. It'll be like a great light shining into the darkness. And all those nations that do not currently know God will be released from the prison of their ignorance and set free to truly live. This is a beautiful, beautiful prophecy. God's servant will be a bringer of justice to all who are oppressed, a healer of the relationship between humanity and God, a blessing to the world. And the whole point of Isaiah bringing this prophecy to Israel is to say to them, from now on, this is what you are to aspire to. This servant that I'm describing to you embodies all that you ought to be. You've learnt your lesson in exile. Now live as the servants that you were always called to become. And if you do, you will please God and you will bring untold blessing into the world, making it a far better place to live. But of course, even when having this beautiful example to follow and emulate, Israel failed to put it into practice. They failed to live up to this ideal, just as we all fail to live up to this ideal. I've been very reluctant to comment on what is going on in the world at the moment. It's far too complicated, too terrible. But I will for a moment here. Clearly on the 7th of October, Israel suffered an appalling, horrific attack. But their response has hardly been one of gentleness and justice, has it? The smouldering wick of the lives of over 5,000 Palestinian children have been snuffed out. The hospitals of Gaza are not filled with light, but darkness, as the generators have run out of power. Now, I'm not saying that I know what Israel should have done, because I don't, but it wasn't this. Breaking the rules of war will bring healing and help to no one. And the horror and the tragedy of what we have witnessed shows us how all human beings, all of them, not just Israel, will fail to live up to this ideal of a servant, no matter how hard we try. In fact, prophecies like Isaiah 42 only demonstrate to all of us how much damage our sin has done, and just how far 
we fall short. So is this prophecy just to be rejected as some exaggerated extreme? A nice idea, maybe something we could strive for, but always impossible to completely fulfill. Well, no. Because prophecy in the Bible is never as simple as that. It often comes with different layers of meaning and we have to try and look at them all. You see, although God did want Israel to aim for this example of a servant, he always knew that they'd never quite make it. And he had a plan to deal with that. Now, I don't know if you know this, but Isaiah 42 is just the first song about a servant in Isaiah. There are actually three more that follow it. And each song builds on the one that came before it. And as you read them in order, very quickly you realise that this servant was never going to be just fulfilled by the nation of Israel. Let me give you a very brief overview. The second song is found in Isaiah 49, verses 1 to 6. And in this song, Isaiah prophesies that the servant will come and restore the nation of Israel from their brokenness and their failure. Here's an extract from it. Is it too small a thing for you to be my servant, to restore the tribes of Jacob, to bring back those of Israel I have kept? I will also make you a light for the Gentiles, that my salvation may reach the ends of the earth. Now, if this servant is going to restore Israel, he cannot just be Israel, can he? He must be someone other than the nation as a whole. But the same beautiful promise is there. Once the servant has fixed Israel, he will bring light and blessing to all the other nations on earth as well. The third servant song is found in Isaiah 50. This song is much darker. It begins to tell us that in order for the servant to restore Israel, he must suffer himself. The servant will be totally obedient to the will of God and that will lead to great pain. Though afterwards he'll be vindicated for his loyalty. Here is an extract. The sovereign Lord has opened my ears and I've not been rebellious. I've not turned away. I offered my back to those who beat me, my cheeks to those who pulled out my beard. I did not hide my face from mocking and spitting. Because the sovereign Lord helps me, I will not be disgraced. Therefore, I've set my face like flint and I know I will not be put to shame. And then we get to the fourth and the final servant song, the one that you may well recognize. And now we can complete the story. Israel were called to be God's servant. They failed. God would send a servant to restore Israel. God's new servant would achieve this through suffering. And the fourth song tells us that that suffering was to bring the people forgiveness once and for all. The fourth servant song is found in Isaiah 52 and 53. And here is the most famous extract from it. See, my servant will act wisely. He'll be raised and lifted up. 
Surely he took up our pain and he bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities, and the punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds we are healed." We all like sheep have gone astray and each one of us has turned to our own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And I hope by now we're beginning to see how the servant prophecies in Isaiah work. At the immediate level, they were given to Israel as the ultimate example for how they were to live once they'd been returned to the land after exile. The servant described as all that they should aspire to be. But for the prophecy to be truly completed, someone else would have to come into the world. Someone who would fulfill all that Israel was supposed to be. Someone who would deal with all of their weakness and all of their failure. Someone who once and for all would bring God's justice and light and blessing into the world. The servant was Israel and the servant would be the one who would save Israel. You have to hold the two together. And the only way that can possibly make sense is in Jesus. Jesus came into the world as God's servant. The envoy of the heavenly king to achieve his purposes. Jesus came as a Jew from Israel to fulfill all that Israel was supposed to be. All God's promises to Israel find their fulfillment in him. Jesus came to save Israel from their sin and to bring forgiveness and light and hope to the world. Through his service, blessing really can reach the farthest corners of the earth. And of course, to achieve this, Jesus would have to act like a servant And humbly put others before himself. He would lay down his life and suffer in our place. Just as Isaiah foresaw. And just in case we are in any doubt that it is Jesus and only Jesus that truly fulfills this prophecy. We should look again at that brief story in Matthew 12. Because when on earth Jesus acted with great gentleness He helped the vulnerable. He mended the broken. He tended to all those smoldering wicks, the fragile ones in the land. An example of this is him healing the man with the shriveled hand. And the same time as he did this, he brought justice, didn't he? The Pharisees had tried to stop this healing because it was the Sabbath. The Pharisees had tied the people up with all sorts of oppressive rules that hindered them from being helped. All in the attempt to make themselves look important. Jesus wasn't having any of this. So he challenged it. And he did it again and again on many other occasions as well. And when he was asked to explain his behaviour, Jesus turned to the crowd and he declared that his ministry fulfilled this prophecy in Isaiah. 
Here is my servant who I have chosen, the one I love in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him and he will proclaim justice to the nations. He will not quarrel or cry out. No one will hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break. A smoldering wick he will not snuff out till he has brought justice through to victory. And in his name, the nations will put their hope. Jesus was God's servant, the one Isaiah had seen 600 years before. And just as Isaiah foresaw, Jesus achieved this because he was filled with God's spirit. Do you hear those words? Here is my servant whom I have chosen, the one I love and whom I delight. They sound very familiar to those words that the father spoke at Jesus' baptism, don't they? Here is my son whom I love, with him I am well pleased. And as the Father said those words, the Spirit descended upon Jesus like a dove. Jesus wasn't interested in becoming famous. He wasn't focused on becoming a political master. He wasn't aggressive. He wasn't beautiful. He wasn't popular. He came to serve. He came to serve us with his life. He brought about justice by dying in our place. And all of our sin and all the sin of the world finds its punishment in him. And because of that, our iniquity has been paid for. We find healing. And one day this servant's going to return and he'll remove all injustice for good. And while we wait, we'll find him treating the vulnerable with gentleness and compassion and holding out hope. For all who trust in him. Jesus is the suffering servant. And one day, just as Isaiah foresaw, he will come again and be vindicated for his efforts. There's only one last thing to say. This calling on the lives of God's people to be a servant has never gone away. Indeed, now that we've seen the servant Jesus, it's only increased. We are to serve Jesus by going out into the world and making him known in word and deed. You know, the Apostle Paul, he was so overcome by the humble service of Jesus that he knew he had to copy it in every way that he could. And he called on the churches that he knew to do the same. Let me finish with some very well-known words from Philippians chapter 2, because they will explain to us how we're to respond to what we've learned this morning. And how we're to live when we go out into Isla this week. This is Philippians 2. If you have any encouragement from being united with Jesus, any comfort from his love, any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but you to the interests of others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness 
Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Let's go from this place to serve the suffering servant, the one who gave his all that we might live. Let us serve God and serve the world by making the name of Jesus known in our words and in our just and gentle dealings with our neighbours. Let us truly put the community of Isla before ourselves. And we're now going to ask God to help us do that by giving us more of his spirit. Let us pray.